Please open with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, the passage that we just read. And I won't reread this, but I'm going to read verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to hear from you. I ask that you would give me wisdom to to preach this passage in a way that honors you and edifies each and every one of us here today. And Father, we ask for the Spirit's help to apply the truth that we glean from this text to our lives, that we would be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when we approach a passage like this, we have to be careful of two things. First, we have to recognize that God was giving a word to Jeremiah for a specific group of people. So we we can't just approach a prophecy and say, that this is talking about us word for word. This was a a specific prophecy to a specific group of people. But then on the other hand, we have to be careful of not learning from these things, the the examples that we see, and and not deriving the, the principles that we can from the text. I was just talking to a brother earlier, and we were we were talking about this idea of judgment. And, and really, we need to understand what's happening in our, in our nation right now. Um, as Pastor Mark was talking to me earlier and, and just pointing out how this is not the same America he, he grew up in. And I think we would all feel the same way, even in my short life. Th- things are, are drastically different. But as I was talking to another brother earlier, one, one of the things that came up is, is what, what's the, the problem here? And so some people might say, well, based upon my eschatology, this is just how things go. There, there's nothing you can do. There, there's no cause of this. This is just the way the book is written. Things will get worse, and things will get worse, and then Christ will return. There is nothing that can happen. And, and one of the dangers of that view is we oftentimes ignore judgment. What if God is saying, repent, repent? And I will restore you. What if he's saying, turn to me, know me? And it doesn't have to be this way. But but you see, if we we look at what's happening around us and say, this is just how it's going to be, we don't see a need to do anything. But ride it out. Stock up our pantry and maybe hide. Hide. There's several things that happen in, in Jeremiah that we're going to look at here. And looking at its relevance to us today, it's interesting how patient and long-suffering God is. We, we often look at the God of the Old Testament, and people oftentimes say, I mean, he, he's just bloodthirsty, he's relentless, but he's patient. Our brother Ken read this chapter, and if you were paying attention to it, you, you saw how frightening this chapter actually is. It's a dark chapter. It's a dark prophecy, but, but it's meant that way on purpose. It's meant to be an alarm. It should be alarming. Jeremiah is called to be a prophet. 
A prophet of God to the nations and kingdoms is what he tells us in chapter 1. And and here in chapter 9, we we have this sobering warning. And this patient God, he he gives them. Imagine receiving this warning from Jeremiah, and it's specifically about you, your nation, your land, and just refusing to change anything. Imagine hearing these words that we read this morning from God and just saying, meh, whatever. But, but this is essentially what, what happens. Jeremiah has, has received this prophecy from God and, and, it's a, and it's a hard prophecy and Jeremiah responds to this the right way. So we see at the end of chapter 8 and here in the beginning of chapter 9, Jeremiah is mourning over what is going to take place. This prophecy has disturbed his soul. And so he says in verse 18 of, of chapter 8, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is, is sick within me. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourned and dismay has taken hold on me. And then we get to to chapter 9, verse 1, and it says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a, a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He he's so grieved, he he wished that his head was just water so that he would have enough tears to shed. He wishes that he could have a a place of lodging in the desert to get away from the pollution of his countrymen. But God has him there as a prophet. Why is Jeremiah mourning in this way? He is mourning over the sins of his people. And not just their sins, but the impending judgment of God that is coming upon them because of their sins. And may God break our hearts in this way. Do we mourn over the the sins of our countrymen? Do, Do we, like David... Shed streams of tears. Do our eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep God's law? What's wrong with that man? He's not the one committing those sins. Why should he care? He loves God. He loves his law. It's his meditation both night and day. And so he sees people breaking God's law and it grieves him. He sheds streams of tears, not only over his own sins, but the sins of the people. Do we wish that our eyes were a fountain of tears, that we might weep over the severity of God's judgment that is breathing down the necks of millions of our countrymen and even more around the globe? May God burden us like the prophet. Because I believe that what we see in our text here is, is, is not much different than what we ourselves are facing as a nation. So what is the problem in this text? Why has God sent a prophet? The problem is that sin abounds. That this is what is happening. He starts in verse 2. They are all adulterers. A company of treacherous men. Verse 3, they they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. That doesn't describe America, does it? Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. What is lying today? Simply doing what you need to do to get by. I need this job. I just lie on my resume. Beef it up. Need this promotion? Just tell a lie. Get out of trouble? Just tell a lie. It's everywhere. 
How, how many people in here believe what you hear on the news? Probably none of us. We know better than that. Why? Because they can sit there and lie and lie and lie, and it doesn't matter. Just lie after lie. This is, this is what is happening there in Jerusalem. He said, for they proceed from evil to evil. One evil after another. Let everyone beware of his neighbor. What, what does the Old Testament tell us? You dwell by your neighbor for safety's sake. But what has happened here? Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Slander is not a good thing in God's eyes. It's a reason for judgment here. But how does this abound in our land and even in our churches? Can't trust your brother. He might turn his back on you. He might slander you to others. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. That's an interesting statement. They've taught their tongues to speak lies? In other words, this, this is a practice. This is, this is something they're getting good at. I'm going to teach myself to speak lies. I want to make sure I'm proficient in it. I want to make sure I can lie without you noticing I want to make sure that I'm an expert liar. And listen to this. They weary themselves committing iniquity. I mean, they're not just sinning here and there. They're putting in effort. They weary themselves committing iniquity. They work hard at committing sin. They, they labor in their sin. Is this not a very similar situation in our country? Just consider the amount of murders and, and, and violent crimes that, that take place. People are working hard to, to figure out how to commit sin. They're laboring hard in their sins. It, it takes a lot of effort. To kill a million babies a year. People are working hard to do that. Putting in the hours, putting in the sweat in order to kill babies. And, and, and listen, there are people at abortion clinics who, who volunteer their time to, to escort women to the abortion, into the door so that they can kill their baby. They want you to go inside and kill, and kill that child. So, so I will escort you there. I will help you get there on my own spare time. And we have rulers like our governor fighting hard, fighting hard to preserve abortion. Why? Because it's health care. People, people are laboring, losing sleep, tr trying to, to commit iniquity. This is what he's saying here. They weary themselves in this. They, they weary themselves in committing iniquity. They try hard. What do Americans do with their money? I can tell you that the, the porn industry in America generates about 12 to 14 billion dollars per year. Let me give you a, compa a comparison. The National Football League only has about 12 billion in revenue. So, so, so the porn industry just in America is, is actually making more money than the NFL. And, and here's the striking thing about that is, that, is that much of that stuff is free. But, but people are, are, are laboring so hard in this that they're even paying for it. And, and it's a massive industry that, that's based upon what? 
iniquity. They weary themselves. Committing iniquity. And then he says, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They just heap these things one on top of the other. And their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With, the, with his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. These are backbiting men and women. Oh, how are you doing? It's so good to see you today. As soon as they turn around, stab them in the back. If you've worked in America at all, you know this to be true. You know that this is the case. If you've been to most churches in America, you know that this is the case even in many churches. How about this? They have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it. We haven't forsaken God's law in America, have we? Just think about it. We've forsaken God's law in, in, in most American churches. In the name of being about the gospel, we say away with God's law. And God says, this is a cause for judgment. They have stubbornly followed their own hearts. What's the saying today? Follow your heart. You, you, just, need to, you just need to follow your heart. But he says they have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the bells as their fathers taught them. Wait a minute. He's talking to his people. Their fathers have, have taught them to, to go after false gods, really? This is God's covenant people. We see this today, don't we? How many men in the church for, for generations have not taken it seriously to, to, to disciple their, their, their boys and their girls? And, and how many, how many men and women, by example, have taught their children to be idolatrous? What Christian parents idolize, their, their children learn from. They haven't been faithful generationally. They're going after the false gods as their, as their fathers taught them. Difference, this is a lawless, idolatrous, depraved people. They, they are swimming in iniquity. And their sinfulness seems to be especially heinous to God. Because they had God's law, but rejected it. And, they, and they, 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 they did not know God, although he had made himself known to them. Listen to what he says. They, they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. They don't know God. But, but, but if God really wanted us to know him, he would reveal himself to us in some way, wouldn't he? Show us a sign. Can, can God really blame them and, and judge them for, for not knowing him? I mean, really? You know, I bet deep down in their hearts, they really want to, to know God, but God is just not revealing himself in a way that is clear. That's the type of thinking we hear today, right? But, but listen to what he says in verse 6. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. And in other words, they, they don't know God, and through deceit, they don't want to know him. They refuse to know him. They, they reject revelation of God. One commentator says their ignorance of God is willful. 
This is especially heinous as, as it leads to even more sin. Alexander Hill said there, there is an intimate connection between the, the disowning of God or the refusing to know him and the practice of sin. We are expressly told that, that because men did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. This is part of why we're so sinful. What happens when a people refuse to know God? When they refuse to to retain the knowledge of God, God gives them over to a reprobate mind. This is part of why they're so sinful. They're reprobates. But but I want you to think about this in the context of, of our country. Through deceit, they refuse to know me. What about our schools and our universities and our media? You ever wondered why they they push evolution, for example, so hard? Is it because it's science? No, it's not actually scientific. Why is it? Because it is an excuse for you to not know God. Because, because if I can tell you that, that you evolved and, and that you're just, you're just a process of evolution, you can throw out God. You're free now. You're free of the law of Moses. It, it no longer condemns. In, in modern philosophy, in modern psychology, and all of these different sciences or pseudosciences, what are they designed to do? Through deceit, they refuse to know me. So so then a person stands there and says, you know, I'm convicted of my sin. And then we say, no, no, no. Our nation says, no, don't worry about that. You know, science has proven that religion is false. And we buy this. So that we have millions of Americans who are refusing to know God. And scripture tells us that deep down they recognize there is a God. They can, they can look at the heavens and, and it declares that there is a God there. But, but they refuse to know this God. And they deceive themselves on purpose so that, they can, so that they don't have to be condemned by his laws. They are refusing to know him. many have not yet realized is that after years and years of refusing to know God in the name of science, God has given many over to a reprobate mind. That is why we see the immorality that we see today. Listen, you cannot have morality without God. It's not possible. And so for generation after generation, we have been divorcing God from morality and, and putting up this, this chasm between God and science. And, and, and if you're educated, you go on the side of science. And, and so now, year after year of refusing to know God, God has given many over to a reprobate mind. And that's why we see what we see in the streets and on the media today. The, the knowledge of God has been more readily available in America than any other place throughout history. And God has graciously made His Word and so many resources abundantly available, but we have refused to know Him as a nation. So what we see parading in our streets is what? Men and women given over to a reprobate mind and teens and children who are being discipled by reprobates. That's why we see five-year-olds wanting to switch their gender. Five-year-olds saying they're homosexual. 
They've been discipled by reprobates. This is why we see what's happening in schools and how they're pushing these things upon little children. What are those? What is that? These people are reprobates. What we're seeing is not normal. And you can see, even in the short history of America, such sinful prevalence has not been the norm. The debased minds, the legalization of everything, and people even wanting pedophilia to be an acceptable thing. What is this? Reprobate minds. Given over to judgment. Our land in many ways is filled with iniquity like what we see described here in Jeremiah. And it's not just those who call themselves unbelievers. It's also those who call themselves God's people. Look at verse 26. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of the hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. What does that mean? God's covenant people. having the, the outward sign of belonging to him, but, but their hearts were, were far from him. They claimed to be God's people, but they lived the exact same way that the pagans did, guilty of the same sins. The only distinction was the outward sign of circumcision. And we know that, that Paul essentially said there was an Israel within Israel. There, there was a true Israel within the nation of Israel. In other words, God had, a, had an elect people within the nation of Israel. Not all of them truly belonged to him. But I think some of, true, some of God's true Israel was also guilty of these things. Because one of the things he says is that he's going to put them in the refiner's pot to purify them. So that's an indication he's talking about his true people there. I'm not going to leave them this way. They are living abominably before me. I am going to refine them. I am going to burn that dross off of them. And we know through God's faithfulness, we can go to to chapter 33, for example, and, and God is faithful and he says, I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to forgive their sins. I'm going to wash them away. And they're going to come back. And, and, and what, did he, what did he do to his, to his true people? Through that judgment, he refined them. But, but notice here another striking similarity today. Now, America is not in covenant with God the way that the nation of Israel was. But, but I think there is a similarity. How many people profess the name of Christ today outwardly? even by joining a church and are guilty of the immorality of the pagans around us. No difference. Ask our brother Jeremy how many women show up to an abortion clinic claiming to be a Christian who's about to murder their baby. I read one study and it said of of 1,038 women who have had abortions, 70% claim a Christian religious preference. And 43% report attending church monthly or more at the time of an abortion. More than 4 in 10 women who have had an abortion were churchgoers when they ended a pregnancy. Let that sink in. Now, I know that I'm using the term church here loosely, and I'm doing that on purpose. I'm not saying that things are just as bad in the world as they are in good, solid churches. That's not what I'm saying. But, but, but what I'm saying is as a nation, we need to see what's going on with the majority of those who are, who are claiming the name of Christ. What about lust? 
Research reveals 68 million search queries on the internet, or one out of every four searches are related to porn. And according to Barner Research, 68% of church-going men and more than 50% of pastors regularly view porn. And when it comes to Christians 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search for porn. And those are only the ones who are admitting it. Most of them, probably baptized, brought into the church, claiming the name of Christ. And there are even churches where people are, are sitting in the pews who are living in fornication. Just living in fornication. I personally know a woman who, who called herself a Christian and she, and she went to church. She had a live-in boyfriend. They even had a baby together. But she wouldn't get married. Why? Because she said her boyfriend's credit was too bad, and if she married him, she would get a bad credit score. So she lives in fornication, professes Christ, and goes to church. I can remember being in a church one time where, where the, the pastor's daughter committed fornication with a deacon, and they aborted the baby so that no one would know. And I'm not making this up. And that church just went on. What was the solution to that, by the way? They broke up the pulpit and got a new one. The church. What about slander and, and gossip? We know that this is prevalent among those who, who, press, who profess the name of Christ. It is, it's everywhere. And again, I recognize that some places that call themselves Christian churches are not Christian at all. And, and I recognize that God is not in covenant with them the way he was with the entire nation of Israel. But, 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 but just look at the similarity. They are naming the name of Christ outwardly. And we wonder why we see what we see in our nation. We live in a nation filled with sin and many who at least outwardly identify themselves with Christ who are no different than the unbelievers around them who deny Christ altogether. But we also know that even in our, our so-called good churches we, we, we see a lot of the same things, don't we? We, we know this is the case. Even with good pastors, we, we often see scandal after scandal. It's not just th those other Christians out there who, who don't believe in Reformed theology. No, it, it's here. And what did Jeremiah prophesy would happen? Because of their great sins against God. What did God have to say about such vast iniquity? Verse number 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. That sends chills down my spine when I hear that. He's about to threat. He's about to give them a threat. And he starts that by saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. What is the Lord of hosts? The, the God of the armies of heaven. This often has to do with war, fighting, military. When David, when David was going to stand before Goliath and he stood before him with absolute confidence that he would strike down this giant who was massive. 
David said, you come with sword and shield. But I come before you in the name of the Lord of hosts. He was confident because, because this is the Lord of hosts. I think it's in 2 Samuel we read that, that, that David, he, he's winning these wars and he becomes great. How? Was it because he was a mighty man? No, it was the Lord of hosts. The, the Lord of hosts is, is a threat to God's enemies. This is the God of the armies of heaven. And now this, this, this threatening name, as it were, is being turned against God's people. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will refine them and test them for what else can I do? Because of my people. This almighty God, who is the, the God of the armies of heaven, has now turned his guns on them, as it were, and said, it is time to be tested with fire. What else can I do? Your iniquity is so great. What else can I do? John Gill said God would melt them and try them as the refiner does his gold and silver by putting them into the fire of afflictions and thereby remove their dross and corruption from them. Some of those in the land truly belonged to God and they weren't living like it. And God was going to purify them in a painful way. Consider this. Consider this. Are, are, are we guilty of the, the sins of our nation? And if God were to, to bring judgment upon us that, that we ourselves would, would experience, it would, it would hurt, but, but because He loves us, it would be for our purification. But, but we don't even have to experience that. And that we'll get to in a moment. God will purify His church. Be it through revival or judgment, it will be purified. He loves it too much. He loves her too much to leave her in her sin, to leave her as she is. Shall I not punish them? For these things, declares the Lord. And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah desolation without inhabitant. This is severe judgment. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, there it is again, the God of Israel. Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. The Lord of hosts said that. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And his threats are not idle. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. They, they had professional whalers you would hire to come in and, and mourn when someone died. And, and he says, send for them. Death is coming. Mourning is going to be appropriate. Wailing is going to be needed. For death has come into our windows. It has entered our palaces cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field like sheaves after the reaper and none shall gather them. Can you imagine being told this directly by God. This is why Jeremiah is weeping. 
The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the fields. Such is the severity of God's judgment. Alexander Hill, a preacher in the 19th century, I believe he was in Scotland. He said, The majesty of God cannot be offended without or with impunity. In other words, the, 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 the majesty of God cannot be offended without consequence. So here it is. We don't have to have a prophecy directly from Jeremiah to America. The majesty of God will not be offended with impunity. National distress and individual suffering, suffering are the bitter fruits of not obeying His voice. But what were the sins which called forth His judgment in their case? Let us look to our own ways. For alas, the sins which brought destruction upon Judah are the very sins with which our own land and we ourselves may be charged. These are the sins which are not by any means peculiar to the Jews. And if God will be avenged for such things, well may the people of our land and every member of every family within it be humbled and alarmed and cry earnestly to God. This is written in the 19th century. How much more today are we guilty of these things? And how much more today have we, have we offended the holy God? We've had more revelation than anyone before us. More access to, to Scripture than anyone before us. And our sins put the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah to shame. This is an alarming, humbling reality. As Spurgeon would say, there's no judgment in the afterlife for nations, so, so God judges them here and now. But is there any hope for the people in Jeremiah? Is, is this just a dark prophecy? If there is hope, where, where were they to look for this hope? What is the hope for a nation like this facing judgment? Well, first of all, what is the wrong source of hope? Verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches. What does it mean to glory in something? It means to boast in it, to, to put one's confidence in it, to, to make it the source of one's hope. These people would hear the coming judgment of God. And they say, okay, God is threatening us with judgment. But if I'm wise enough, or if I'm strong enough, or, or if I have enough wealth, I will somehow escape this judgment. R.C. Sproul said, wisdom, might, and riches are natural places for sinful human beings to place their trust. Yet none of these things can withstand the outpouring of God's wrath. Our country is so confused right now. And I think that many people recognize there's an issue. They just can't see for some reason that, 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 that the issue is a rejection of God. The, the more we reject God, the worse things get. And we never put the two together. And so, we don't recognize that, that in many ways it's like we're, we are experiencing a, a Romans 1 judgment. That the prevalence of sin, crime, corruption seems to be the result of people being given over to a reprobate mind, but, but we don't see this. So, so we just blame it on other things. And, and so what is our nation looking for as the source of hope? 
What are we trusting in? And, and, and also, what is the church trusting in? How about wisdom? We just need more education. The, the, the problem in America is that teachers don't get paid enough, and so that we lose all of the good teachers, and so the students don't learn, and they, they get into crime, and, and this, is, this is our trouble. This is the, the, the source of our trouble in America, is that teachers don't get paid enough. I love what Vodibachum says. You take a sinful man and you educate him. And all he does is become more sophisticated in his ability to sin. Wisdom is not the hope. And even what it means to be educated is changing daily. Because now if you're, if you're truly educated, you're, you're woke, right? I mean, you, you really understand what's going on now. Smash capitalism. That's the problem with America. Capitalism. That, that, that is the source of all of our trouble in America. Capitalism. We, we need to smash all the remnants of, of the white supremacy. And that would solve all of our problems in America. This is what we hear. The problem is that we're not woke enough. The problem is that we don't have this inside wisdom. And if we had this inside wisdom, it would heal our land. It would save us. Our nation would turn around and stop being destroyed. What about the church? The church has bought into this, hasn't it? You know what? If we are woke, maybe... Maybe we will get more people, and maybe that will change us. Or some say, you know, the gospel is just too simple. A sophisticated man needs something more than that. I can't just go and share this simple gospel that a five-year-old will understand. Or what about apologetics? That, oh, that, that must be it. If we learn how to defend our faith better, if we learn how to defend Christ better, what will that do? That will surely win the nation to Christ. We, we hope and trust in that. Is that a good thing, apologetics? Yes. Is it the hope for our nation? Does apologetics change hearts? No, it doesn't. Spurgeon once said that in a nation where the gospel is being preached, you very rarely need apologetics because the gospel is its own apologist. You can't argue with changed hearts. What about might? We just need to make sure our military is strong enough. Let God judge us. If we have a strong enough military, we'll fight them off. God is telling Jeremiah that the Babylonians are coming. You're going to trust in your might? After the Lord of hosts says, I am going to drive you out with the sword until you are destroyed? No, no. Sword and shield will do nothing for you. Listen, we're, we're talking about the judgment of God. We just need more power. Well, if the government had more power over the people, they could, they could contain us more, right? If we, gave, if, we, if we gave the government all of our guns, there'd be no more gun violence. This, this is the solution, right? We just need more power. We need stricter laws to, to restrict the people more, and that would give the government all the power it's need to ensure our safety. Or what about the church? And here's, here's the tricky thing with this. There are so many good things that we should be pursuing. So, so many good things we should be trying to do. But we have to recognize that those good things are not the solution in and of itself. And here's what I mean. If God sends judgment on us, 
I'm just going to load up on ammo and carry my gun. That'll save me from judgment. That'll save me from whatever God brings upon this nation. Now hear me, I'm saying that as one who carries a gun. But that's not my hope. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But what I'm saying is, if, if that's our hope, if that's what we're trusting in, we are deceived. What about getting Christians into high political positions and using their influence? Is that a good thing? Yes, that is a wonderful thing. Praise God when we can do that. But is that what we are trusting in? No. Because a a Christian in a high political office cannot change the hearts of men, even though we want that. We, We want that to happen, but it's not the solution. Let me give you an example. Daniel 5, Nebuchadnezzar. A new man, a changed man. And after that, we don't read anything else about him. There. Was there revival in Babylon? I don't know what happened. They seemed to still be wicked. He couldn't change their hearts even as a godly man. Yes, we want godly laws established. We want godly men in political positions, in high positions of authority, and they can do much good in those positions. But the problem is that the people don't know God. What about riches? We just need more money. You know, if the people just pay more taxes, the the government could have more money and it could ensure that everything stays okay for us. Oh, you can do anything if you have enough money, right? That's the saying. If, if If you have enough money, you can do anything. Anything but save yourself from God's judgment. But what about the church? Well, you know, the reason why the world is the way it is because we don't have enough money in the church. How many people on TV, these televangelists, constantly says, we just need more money. If you would just send us more money, we could, we could do this for the world and we could do that for the world. It's all about the money. How, how little is your God that he can't even provide for you? That, that literally, you not having enough money it is the source of the evil in the world. And by the way, can the church do good with, with more resources? Absolutely. That's not a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. But if that is what we are trusting in, is that, if that is what we are hoping in, we are deceived. Well, if our nation would simply pay off its debt and become fiscally conservative, we would be okay as a nation. Would that be good? Yes. Would that save us? No. What are we hoping in? What are we trusting in? What is the, the proper solution? He gives us the proper solution in verse 24. But let him who glories, glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Let him who boasts. Boast in this, that he knows God. That is to be our hope. What did Paul say? Galatians 6. But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of Christ our Lord. Worldly wisdom, power, and wealth cannot save a nation from God's judgment. Jeremiah says the problem is that they don't know God. The solution, the thing that they need to hope in is coming to know God, which would lead to repentance from their wickedness that plagued the land. This means not only a saving knowledge of God, 
which comes through the proclamation of the gospel. See, our, our nation needs the saving knowledge of God through the proclamation of the gospel, but, but it also needs to grow in this knowledge of God, not just the gospel. Listen to what he says. Glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. We, we need to know about God. It's true that you can come to know God as a Christian, and, and because of your ignorance, you sin. You don't know God. Or if you sit in a church that says there is no law of God, and, and, you, and you, you willfully sin, not even recognizing that, that you don't truly, that you're truly breaking his law. You don't even know it. How many people sit in churches being deceived? Not recognizing that they're breaking God's law and grieving him because they are not being taught his law. They didn't even know his law still existed. They didn't even know that the, that the Old Testament was a part of the Bible. We need to know God in a salvific way, and we need to know the attributes of God. We need to know God's law. We need to know what pleases Him and what displeases Him. How can we make sure that we are not living in a way that brings judgment if we don't even understand who God is and what He commands us to do? If we, like Jeremiah are concerned about the sins of our nation and the judgment we are beginning to experience, then we must be eager to administer this remedy. Listen, we need to know God and to make Him known. Alexander once again, Hill once again said, Let it be our object, by our example and our endeavors, to bring all around us to know the Lord, so we may hope that His judgments will be averted from ourselves and our land, and His purpose in regard to us in subjecting us to the furnace of affliction will be not to avenge upon us, but to make the trial of our faith unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus. We need to make Him known in hopes that he will spare us from his judgment. It's a sad situation. In the case of God's people, Jeremiah prophesied what would happen, and they did not repent. They refused to turn from their wickedness, so God fulfilled his prophecy and, and, and brought great destruction upon them. But does it have to be that way? What did Nineveh do when they were warned of God's judgment? We read in Jonah, so the people of Nineveh believed God. And then what did they do? There was a decree, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? That is the proper response to the threat of God's judgment. And what did God do? And then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster He had said He would bring upon them and He did not do it. I think there's a general principle here. God punishes wicked nations. When, when nations repent, God blesses them. He blesses obedience and he punishes disobedience. This is a general principle. Do we recognize this? 
Do, do, do we look at what's happening in our nation as something that is inevitable? Or do we look at this as a church, as Christians who know the solution and say, let me apply the remedy. Let me know God and make him known. Let me repent of my own sins and call my, my brothers and sisters around me and my neighbors around me to repent of their sins that God would perhaps relent and turn back his judgment. Dear friends, this is why we need to pray for revival. This is something we can't do on our own. Do we recognize that? I love reading about revival throughout history. There's a book titled, How the 18th Century Revival Saved Britain. Britain. On the brink of a French-style revolution. And a few faithful men decided that they would go and proclaim the truth. In the streets, on the hills, in the mines, wherever they could. We're going to go proclaim the truth. And God brought revival to them. And what happened through that revival? Thousands upon thousands converted and it changed the very fabric of their nation. They were on the brink of revolution and it changed the very course of their nation. This is the, the, the power of God. The problem there in Britain is that those people did not know God. They, they were drunkards. They were blasphemers. They were, they were immoral. They were sexually immoral. There, there was so much heinousness going on at the time. They did not know God. And men rode around on horseback making God known. And God blessed it. And God spared their nation. This is what we need to be seeking. I firmly believe that, that here in America, we will either see judgment or revival, one of the two. And, and it seems like in many ways, judgment is already upon us. We need to be on our knees praying that, that God would revive us because, because what happens when God sends a revival? He does the saving. He does what we cannot do. He, he changes hearts. He regenerates hard, cold, and penitent sinners, and He changes them so that they respond to the gospel with faith and repentance. And when He does that, He also awakens His people so that they are serious about sin. They are serious about repentance. They are serious about sharing the gospel. And it changes the very fabric of a nation. This is what we need. And this is what we should desire, and this is what we should be praying for. Let us pray. Dear God, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We know that you punish sin that you punish iniquity, that you punish wicked nations. But, oh God, make us a hopeful people. A people who are hopeful in, 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 in the, the, the power of the gospel to change hearts and to change nations. Help us not to look to the weapons of men to fight spiritual battles. Help us not to be trusting in wisdom and strength and riches to try to face your judgment upon a wicked nation, but, but help us to know, Father, that, that the problem is that our nation does not know you and that through deceit it refuses to know you. Father, we ask that you would send us revival. That you would come down and visit us. Revive us, Lord, who are often cold and dead. 
Revive, revive us or revive your church. Help us to be concerned about the, the sins that our neighbors are committing. Help, help us to, to weep and mourn over the sins of our countrymen. Help us to weep and mourn over the judgment that shall come upon them and upon our nation if it doesn't repent. And Father, help us to know you and, and help us to make you known, to, to understand that this is the true remedy to, to our problems in this land. And, and we ask that you would make us zealous and eager and faithful in making you known to all around us. And we would trust in that alone. The saving power of you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.